two hours earlier than usual, we are presenting at this time The Corwin Show, starring Charles Lawton. We will interrupt the broadcast for any late news developments. Man is a long time coming. Man will yet win. Brother may yet line up with brother. Columbia presents Corwin. From Hollywood, Norman Corwin brings you the first of three broadcasts entitled An American Trilogy, starring the eminent actor Charles Lawton in special adaptations of the works of three American writers, Carl Sandburg, Thomas Wolfe, and Walt Whitman. Each program will be narrated by Mr. Lawton and scored by Bernard Herman. Tonight, Charles Lawton in Norman Corwin's production of Sandburg. Nothing we can part with. Nothing we can say goodbye to. Nothing of material and practical contribution is to be mentioned for comparison with the pouring out of the blood of our picked and chosen youth on altars dedicated to national existence and the rainbow hopes of the four freedoms. Death carries majesty. The dust of vanished youth can be sacred. The phantom of a good fighting man can come back asking, How goes the flag I fought for? Has any man's dream of a better world been helped? Who do you think you are? Where do you think you come from? From toenails to the hair of your head, you're mixed to the earth of the air. Listen to the laboratory man tell you what you are, what you're made of, man. Listen while he takes your part. Weighing 150 pounds, you hold 3,500 cubic feet of gas, oxygen, hydrogen, nitrogen. From the 22 pounds and 10 ounces of carbon in you is the filling for 9,000 lead pencils. In your blood are 50 grains of iron. And in the rest of your frame, enough iron to make a spike that would hold your weight. You're a walking drugstore. And a cosmos. And a phantasmagoria treading a lonesome valley. One of the people, one of the people, seeing sun, fog, zero weather, seeing fire, flood, famine, having meditations. One of the people. Yes, the people. A seething of saints and sinners, toilers, loafers, Oxen, apes, the one and only source of armies, navies, work gangs, the living, flowing breath of the history of nations, the little family of man hugging the little ball of earth. The root holds of the earth nourish the majestic people. And new generations with names never heard of plough deep in broken drums, Piling revolt on revolt across night valleys, letting loose insurrections, uprisings, 
flooding in a somnambulism of fog and rain till a given moment exploded by long-prepared events. And drum on immense drums the monotonous daily motions of the people. On immense drums you can drum the monotonous daily motions of the people, taking from earth and air their morsels of bread and love, a carryover from yesterday into tomorrow. You can blow on great brass horns the awful clamors of war and revolution when swarming anonymous shadow shapes obliterate old names, big names, and cross out what was and offer what is on a fresh blank page. Across the bitter years, the deathless dream will be the stronger. The dream of equity will win. Each man pictures his hell or heaven different. Some have snug, home-like heavens, suburban, well-kept. Some have a wild, storm-swept heaven. Their happiness has been in storms. Heaven must have storms mixed with fair weather. And hell, for some, is a jail. For others, a factory. For others, a kitchen. For others, a place of many polite liars. What kind of a liar are you? People lie because they don't remember clear what they saw. People lie because they can't help making a story better than it was, the way it happened. People tell white lies so as to be decent to others. People lie in a pinch, hating to do it, but lying on because it might be worse. And people lie just to be liars for a crooked personal gain. What sort of a liar are you? A liar lies to nations. A liar lies to the people. Hitler, April the 1st, 1939. The German people have no thought of invading any country. A liar takes the blood of the people and drinks this blood with a laugh and a lie. Hitler, September the 30th, 1942. We shall take Stalingrad. You may depend upon it. And you can be sure of the firm conviction that no human being shall ever push us away from that spot. This liar is an old one. We know him many years. He's as straight as a dog's hind leg. He's as straight as a corkscrew. He's as white as a black cat's foot at midnight. Who shall speak for the people? 
Who knows the works from A to Z so he can say... I know what the people want. When have the people been half as rotten as what the panderers to the people dangle before crowds? Step right up and get your panicle. Cues cancer, flat feet, heart disease, gallstones and dandruff, one dollar a bottle. Together with a year's membership in the German-American Bund, guaranteed to cure patriotism, make you hate Jews, love General Franco and lose friends, all for one dollar. When has the fiber of the people been as shoddy as what is sold to the people by cheaters? What is it the panderers and cheaters of the people play with and trade on? The credulity of believers and hopers. And when is a heart less of a heart because of belief and hope? What is the tremulous line between credulity on the one side and on the other the hypotheses and illusions of inventors, discoverers, navigators who chart their course by what they hope and believe is beyond the horizon? What is a stratosphere balloon 14 miles from the earth or a sunken glass house on the sea bottom? Unless a bet that man can shove on beyond yesterday's record of man, the hoper, the believer. How like a sublime sanctuary of human credulity is that room where amid tubes, globes, and retorts, they shoot with hydrogen and batter with fire streams of power, hoping to smash the atom. The constitution of the neutral atom can be studied by hypothecating a process by which N electrons are captured and bound in the field of force surrounding... Who are these bipeds trying to take apart the atom and isolate its electrons and make it tell why it is what it is? Believers and hopers. Let the work of their fathers and elder brothers be cancelled this instant, and what would happen? Nothing. Only every tool, bus, car, bulb, print, film, instrument depending for its life on electrodynamic power, would stop and stand dumb and silent. Believers and hopers. flag and a dream out of time the evening star inviolable over the coal mines the shimmer of northern lights across a bitter winter night the blue hills beyond the smoke of the steelworks the ten cent crocus bulb blooming in a used car salesroom. The horseshoe over the door, the luck piece in the pocket, and the kiss, and the comforting laugh. Hope is an echo. Hope ties itself yonder, yonder. I have looked over the earth 
and seeing the swarming of different people to a different God. White men with prayers to a white God. Lord, Let me never be ashamed. Deliver me in thy righteousness. Bow down thine ear to me. Deliver me speedily. Be thou my strong rock. Black men with said, prayers to a black God. Yellow faces before altars to a yellow-faced God. Amid burning fires, they have pictured God with a naked skin. Amid frozen rocks, they have pictured God clothed and shaggy as a polar bear. I have met stubs of men broken in the pain and mutilation of war, saying God is forgetful, too far off, too far away. I have met people saying they talked with God face to face. They tell God. Hello, God. How are you, God? They get familiar with God and hold intimate conversations. Yet I have met other people saying... I am afraid to see God face to face. For I would ask questions. Even as God might ask me questions. I have seen these facts of God and man. And anxious earthworms hunting for a home. I have seen the spotted sunset sky filled with flights and wings. And I have heard high in the twilight blue the propellers of man in the evening airmail droning from Omaha to Chicago, droning across Iowa and Illinois. I have said the prints of many new wings, many fresh flights, many clean propellers shall be on the sky before we understand God and the works of wings and air. In the casual drift of routine, in the day-by-day run of mine, in the play of careless circumstance, the anecdotes emerge. Alive with people in words, errands, motives, and silhouettes. Taller than the immediate moment, the anecdotes emerge. Is it farther than next time? It seems farther than it is, but you'll find that it ain't. Sergeant, if a private calls you a darn fool, what would you do? I'd throw him in the guardhouse. If he just thinks you're a darn fool and doesn't say it, then what? Nothing. We'll let it go at that. Get off this estate. What for? Because it's mine. Where did you get it? From my father. Where did he get it? From his father. And where did he get it? He fought for it. Well, I'll fight you for it. Which way to the post office, boy? I don't know. <laughs> you don't know much, do you? Nope, but I ain't lost. What do you know? The number 42, which I picked as a winner, won the raffle. Did you guess the number 42, or did you have a system? I had a system. What was it? I took up the old family album, and they're on page 7 with my grandmother and grandfather, both on page 7. And I said to myself, this is easy. For 7 times 7 is the number that'll win. And 7 times 7 is 42. I see. What was the last thing Paul Revere said to his horse on the famous ride? Whoa. Too bad you have to work in this kind of a soup parlor, waiter. I work here, customer, but I don't eat here. Isn't that an iceberg on the horizon, Captain? Yes, madam. Oh, what if we get into a collision with it? The iceberg, madam, will move right along as though nothing had happened. No, no, I tell you no. No, no, I tell you no. No, no, I tell you no. Pardon me, but what are you yelling for? I'm a yes man taking a vacation. No, no, I tell you no. No, no. 
Have you a criminal lawyer in this burg? We think so, but we haven't been able to prove it on him. I hear a burglar in the house. Well, let's wait. If he finds anything worth stealing, we'll take it away from him. <laughs> Anecdotes emerged. Alive with people in words, Aaron's motives. Taller than the immediate moment. The, the people laugh. The people sing. The gang in its working clothes. The picnic bunch in its best bib and tucker. Hicks from the sticks and big town Hicks. They sing whatever they want to. And it may be the old rugged cross. Or the old gray mare. Or a late hit. They are hit by the hit songs. It's only a hit when it hits them. They soon drop it like a hot potato, or they hold on to it for keeps. And whenever they keep changing a song with tunes twisted 40 ways and new verses you never heard of, at last, then, it's a folk song. Cincinnati. She in Burlington. He was in a gang of postal telegraph linemen. She was a pot wrestler in a boarding house. She wrote him... The crying is lonely. He answered... The same here. The winter went by, and he came back, and they married. And he went away again where rainstorms knocked down telegraph poles and wires dropped with frozen sleet. And again she wrote him... The crying is lonely. And again he answered... The same here. Their five children are in the public schools. He votes and is a taxpayer. They are known among those who know them as honest American citizens living honest lives. Many things that bother other people never bother them. They have their five children. And they're a couple. A pair of birds that call to each other and satisfy. As sure as he goes away, she writes him. And he flashes back the old answer. The same here. It's a long time since he was a gang lineman at Cincinnati. And she was a pot wrestler in a Burlington boarding house. Yet they never get tired of each other. They're a couple. <laughs> machine. Never wastes anybody's time. Never watches the foreman. Never talks back. Never says what is right or wrong. The machine, yes, the machine, cuts your production cost. A man is a man, and what can you do with him? A man is a man, and what can you do with him? But a machine, now you take a machine, no kids, no woman, never hungry, never thirsty. All a machine needs is a little regular attention and plenty of grease, and plenty of grease. And plenty of grace. And plenty of grace. 
A father sees a son nearing manhood. What shall he tell that son? Life is hard. Be steel. Be a rock. And this might stand him for the storms and serve him for humdrum and monotony and guide him amid sudden betrayals and tighten him for slack moments. Life is a soft loam. Be gentle. Go easy. And this, too, might serve him. Brutes have been gentle where lashes failed. The growth of a frail flower in a path up has sometimes shattered and split a rock. A tough will counts. So does desire. Tell him too much money has killed men and left them dead years before burial. The quest of lucre beyond a few easy needs has twisted good enough men sometimes into dry, thwarted worms. Tell him time as a stuff can be wasted. Tell him to be a fool every so often and to have no shame over having been a fool, yet learning something out of every folly hoping to repeat none of the cheap follies, thus arriving at intimate understanding of a world numbering many fools. Tell him to be alone often and get at himself. And above all, tell himself no lies about himself, whatever the white lies and protective fronts he may use amongst other people. Tell him solitude is creative. If he's strong, and the final decisions are made in silent rooms. Tell him to be different from other people if it comes natural and easy being different. Let him have lazy days seeking his deeper motives. Let him seek deep for where he's a born natural. Then he may understand Shakespeare and the Wright brothers, Pastor, Pavlov, Michael Faraday and free imaginations bringing changes into a world resenting change. He'll be lonely enough to have time for the work he knows as his own. The people is a cauldron and reservoir of the human reserves that shape history. The people have the element of surprise. Where are the kings today? What has become of their solid and fastened thrones? Who are the temporary puppets holding sway while anything waits around a corner, sits in the shadows, and holds an axe, waiting for the appointed hour? The Tsar has eight million men with guns and bayonets. Nothing can happen to the Tsar. They said that for years. As a portent and an assurance, they said with owl faces... Nothing can happen to the Tsar. Yet the Tsar and his bodyguard of eight million vanished. And the Tsar stood in a cellar before a little firing squad. And the command of fire was given. And the Tsar traveled into an ethereal, uncharted Siberia while two Kaisers also vanished from thrones, ancient and established in blood and iron. Two Kaisers backed by ten million bayonets had their crowns in a gutter. In the shove and whirl of unforeseen combustions, the people, yes, the people, move eternally in the elements of surprise, 
changing from hammer to bayonet and back to hammer. The Hallelujah Chorus. Forever shifting its star soloists. Who can fight against the future? What is the decree of tomorrow? Haven't the people gone on and on, always taking more of their own? How can the orders of the day be against the people in this time? Who can stop them from taking more and more of their own? The old anvil laughs at many broken hammers. There are men who can't be bought. The people will live on. The learning and blundering people will live on. Tricked and sold and again sold, they go back to the nourishing earth for root holds. The people, so peculiar in renewal and comeback, you can't laugh off their capacity to take it. Can the wilderness be put behind? Shall man always go on? Dog eat dog, who says so? The stronger, and who is the stronger? And how shall the stronger hold on as the stronger? Will tomorrow write of the people, by the people, for the people? What mockers ever wrung a crop from a waiting soil? Or when did cold logic bring forth a child? They asked a kite-flying sky-gazer. And he wished in return to know what use is a baby. The dreaming scholars who questioned the useless, who wanted to know merely for the sake of knowing, they sought and harnessed electrodynamic votes, becoming in time 30 billion horses in one country, becoming in time 30 billion horsepower. And is this an early glimpse? dim beginning, the first hill in a series of hills. What comes after the spectrum? With what will the test tubes be shaken tomorrow? For what will the acetylene torch and pneumatic chisel be scrapped? What will the international partnerships of the world laboratories track down next? What new fuels, amalgams, alloys, seeds, crossbreeds, unforeseen shortcuts to power? Whose guess is better than anybody else's on whether the breed of firebringers is run out? Whether light rays, death rays, laugh rays are now for us only in a dim beginning. Whither away? And where do we go from here? Across the bitter years and the howling winters, the deathless dream will be the stronger. The dream of equity will come. Man is a long time coming. Man will yet win. Brother will line up with brother. have been listening to Charles Lawton and Norman Corwin's adaptation and production of Sandberg, first of an American trilogy based on the works of three great modern writers. With Mr. Lawton in the cast were Hans Conried, Wally Mayer, Mercedes McCambridge, Dick Ryan, Joan Loring, Will Wright, Joe Granby, Lorene Tuttle, Bob Bruce, Norman Field, Earl Ross, Horace Willard, 
Peter Chong, Franklin Parker, Harry Bartell, Edward Marr, and Earl Robinson. Bernard Herman composed and conducted the original score. At this same time, next week, CBS will bring you the second program of an American trilogy, Corwin's production of selections from the writings of Thomas Wolfe, again with an original score by Columbia's prize-winning Bernard Herman. The Ironized East Big Town program was canceled tonight in order to bring you the previous broadcast. Big Town will be heard at this same time next week over these same stations. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Continuing its up-to-the-minute coverage of the invasion of Western Europe, CBS World News now brings you the latest news developments, followed by reports by its correspondents at home and abroad. First, for the latest news dispatches, here is John Daly. Here is what we know officially about the progress of the invasion of Europe at this moment. The second communique from Supreme Allied Headquarters, issued early this evening Eastern wartime, told us that our forces succeeded in their initial landings and that fighting continues. Our landings were effected under cover of a heavy air and naval bombardment. We know officially that our naval casualties were light, much lighter than expected. President Roosevelt told his radio and press conference that up to noon today, Eastern wartime, United States naval losses were two destroyers and one landing ship for tanks. Two rear admirals of the United States Navy were aboard cruisers which took part in the naval bombardment, which preceded the landings. Rear Admiral Alan Goodrich Kirk, commander of one of the task forces, watched the operations from his flagship, the cruiser Augusta, and Rear Admiral Morton L. Deo was in command of the cruiser Tuscaloosa. The American battleship Nevada paced the 4,000 Allied ships that made up the striking armada. We know officially, too, that more than 1,000 troop-carrying planes and gliders dropped Allied paratroopers and other airborne troops behind the German lines in France. The airborne phase of the operations met with what the Allied High Command described as unexpected success, and Prime Minister Churchill told the House of Commons earlier in the day that our parachute troops seized a number of vital bridges before the Germans had time to blow them up. Churchill gave the only official Allied indication of just where our troops landed and how far they have advanced. He announced that Allied invasion spearheads have penetrated the railroad town of Caen, nine and a half miles inland. But reports from the Germans indicate tonight that Allied forces have pushed inland from seven and a half to ten miles at key points along a 60-mile front. And the British radio said we're 13 miles inland at one point north of Caen. While the official reports are heartening, but meager in detail, we do know from the reports of correspondents and Allied pilots who flew over the battle area that our progress appears to be good in every area. We know, too, that there have been no German counterattacks up to this time, although such attacks are expected momentarily. At 8 p.m. Eastern wartime, the German-controlled Paris radio said that an important American-British naval squadron was cruising off Cherbourg. CBS correspondent Charles Collingwood reports that we have already taken some German prisoners. He saw them line up at the end of one of our beachheads. At the same time, the first wounded men from the invasion front have landed back in England. And about them, we have this report. Despite their wounds, many were cheerful and smiling. To round out the unofficial reports on in the invasion, the London Daily Mail says in a dispatch from Stockholm that Adolf Hitler is expected to make a speech soon from somewhere in the West, where he is said to be in personal command of the anti-invasion operations. And that's the best news we've had today. 
considering his record to date as a commander of the German forces in the field. Now a picture of American fighting men and how they react in battle by one who has seen them in action. Here is Columbia's war reporter, Quentin Reynolds. I know nothing about the master strategy of war, and it would be presumptuous for me to try to guess what will happen tomorrow or the next day. And I have no idea at all as to the final outcome of this most daring of all military operations. But I do know G.I. Joe. I saw him in action in Sicily and at Salerno, and I know his reactions. I know his hopes and his fears. I know that he has been looking forward eagerly to this test just as he once looked forward to playing in a big high school football game. Oh, he was a bit nervous about it, but he knew that once it began, his nervousness would leave. It was tough for G.I. Joe crossing the channel last night, because he knew there were enemy minefields that had to be crossed. Then, sitting there on the deck of his ship, he had nothing to do. Nothing to do but think. There was a chaplain on every large ship in the invasion armada. Chaplains learned during the Sicilian invasion, during the Salerno operation at Anzio, that G.I. Joe doesn't want any sermons preached to him just before he goes into battle. He wants a pat on the back. and Sometimes he wants to talk, to unburden himself. That's what G.I. Joe did last night. Just got to talking with the padre. And it didn't matter much what faith the padre belonged to. All chaplains wear the same uniforms. And there is only one god at the front. Then the invasion fleet neared the enemy coast. Now G.I. Joe tightened up. He examined his M3 submachine gun carefully. Took it apart. Put it together. Fingered his clips of ammunition. He kept telling himself that he wasn't afraid. Tolstoy once said in War and Peace, every soldier is afraid that he will be weak at the decisive moment. Tolstoy was right. G.I. Joe felt that way. Well, they got near the enemy coast, and his nervousness increased. Maybe he lit a cigarette and then tossed it to the deck hurriedly when an officer called sharply, put that out, and then it was H hour. He was tumbling over the side into a waiting LCI. He had to steady himself because there was a slight swell, and he grinned weakly at his pals, indistinct in the thin dawn. They all felt as he did. It was like that at high school, just before the kickoff. Then the boat started towards shore. There wasn't much opposition as they went toward the shore. The boat grounded a few feet from the beach, and G.I. Joe hopped out, keeping his gun high over his head, adjusting his steel helmet. The German mortars and machine gun fire opened up. He heard the bullets whistling past, and he ducked instinctively. Then he laughed sheepishly. There are no foxholes in the English Channel. He surged forward, and the cold water acted as a bracer. Then he hit land. Sappers attached to his company dashed ahead to be sure there were no mines. Now suddenly the nervousness left G.I. Joe. He looked coolly ahead, and when he saw a flash, he automatically lifted his Tommy gun and sprayed a clip of bullets toward it. Now his long training told. He did things, the right things, instinctively. He avoided booby traps and mines. 
He dashed from one bit of cover to another. When mortar shells began to drop close, he and his pals fanned out the way veterans do. They didn't bunch up in a tight group to be annihilated by one shell. They pressed on. After five hours, his officers told him to eat something. In his pocket was his cardboard box of K-rations. Ham and eggs, spread, and biscuits. Concentrated chocolate, and best of all, cigarettes. It was light now, and he puffed his cigarette happily. He kept on advancing all afternoon. Just before darkness blanketed France, mess orderlies came up with cans of sea rations. G.I. Joe had to eat them cold, but that was all right. He had his meat and vegetable hash right out of the can. And he took out the powdered lemon he found there, added some water from his canteen, and had a tin cup full of pretty good lemonade. He munched a piece of chocolate, and he had a smoke, and he felt pretty good. A message had come through from General Montgomery. G.I. Joe loves Monty. You know why. He loves him because Monty always wins. We Americans like winners. G.I. Joe kidded with his pals about Monty's message. It promised him that he would have a hot meal in the morning, cooked by his own field kitchens, which would land during the night. That was good news. G.I. Joe grinned and said casually to his pal next to him, it wasn't so tough after all, was it? This morning, G.I. Joe was just another healthy young American kid. Tonight, tonight he's a soldier, a veteran, a man who has been tested and not found wanting. He looks forward to tomorrow with confidence. So should we. We should be mighty proud of these sons of ours. They're pretty wonderful. Next, an analysis of the strategic and tactical aspects of the fighting. Columbia's military expert, Major George Fielding Elliott. There is no use minimizing the stern and savage character of the fighting that lies ahead of our armies and their allies before they can hope to overcome the resistance of the German forces. The Germans are at bay. They are fighting for the last hope which remains for them the hope of pushing back our invasion of Western Europe into the sea and then turning in full strength to check the coming Russian onslaught. It is not a very bright hope, but it is the only hope they have, and they will not give it up easily. There is one comforting thought which can sustain us as the battle is joined, and that is the fact that the present American army is the most capably commanded army which the United States has ever placed in the field at the outset of a war. And this is the real beginning of this war as far as large-scale land operations are concerned. Anyone who has ever read our military history will recall the cruel price which has been paid, paid in the blood of our young men in order to prove the incapacity of political generals or of superannuated generals are of just plain stupid generals in all our preceding wars. Even in the war of 1917-18, when things were a lot better than they were in the Revolution, or in 1812, or in the Civil War or the Spanish War, there still had to be a considerable process of testing, of trial and error and elimination, before some of the incapable general officers of that time were gotten rid of. In this war, matters are very different. 
I don't mean to say that all our general officers are perfect, nor even that all of them are, in all respects, admirable leaders. But as a whole, they represent a far higher average of leadership and all-round military capability than the generals of any of our other wars at the beginning of the first major campaign. This is because they are picked men, because there has been applied to them, not on the battlefield, not at the price of blood, but beforehand, in training and in maneuver areas, a process of test and strain and of ruthless weeding out of the unfit, a process which in all our other wars had to wait for the actual fighting to begin. And this process has also been applied to junior officers by the simple means of insisting that generals should see to it that their juniors were efficient or ceased to be generals on active service. Every American general who now commands a division, a corps, or an army of American troops has been put through this hard and unfor unforgiving mill of trial. Those who have failed in any degree have been relegated to non-combat duties or to the retired list. And the higher the rank and responsibility, the more severe the test, the more exacting the requirement. Of course, this process is not 100% proof against error. Nothing can be in such matters as war leadership, save the actual test of war itself. But it goes a long way, this process, toward eliminating the unfit before they get to the point where their unfitness can cost the lives of our young soldiers. Some, no doubt, will yet remain to be weeded out. But these will not be many, for most of those whose failings have been in any way demonstrated have been weeded out already. For this stern but highly necessary elimination of incapable leaders, the fathers and mothers and wives and sweethearts of the country have to thank the Chief of Staff of the Army, General George Marshall. Ever since he took over the duty of Chief of Staff, he has set himself determinedly to get rid of that class of high-ranking officer who always in time of peace seems to climb slowly up the ladder of seniority and then when war comes, blocks the promotion of better men to the post they are no longer capable of holding. General Marshall looked back on our past records and he resolved that if war came in his time, he would not repeat that error at any rate. We have seen the result on many battlefields and in many parts of the world. We have seen a few generals fail and come home very promptly. We have seen the vast majority of them carry on with their tasks vigorously and capably, whether it be the task of commanders in chief such as Eisenhower and Stilwell, of army commanders such as Clark and Kruger, or of corps commanders such as Keyes and Prescott. It is now D-Day plus one overseas. For a picture of England on this second day of the invasion, we take you now to London, Charles Shaw reporting. This is Charles Shaw in London. It is D-Day plus one in London. It is 2.45 o'clock on the second morning of the invasion. And London is asleep after its biggest day in four years, its biggest day since Dunkirk. However, if you hadn't read the papers, if you hadn't heard the radio, if you had judged only by appearances and manners of the people, you wouldn't have known it was a big day. London took D-Day calmly and soberly. When I remarked about London's D-Day calm to a policeman tonight, he said, well, they're jubilant inside. A fellow American was with me, and after the policeman made his remark, the other American said, after all, you don't cheer the kickoff in a football game. 
you cheer the plays and the final score. From everybody you asked for comment about the news came a reply something like, it's good news. But usually the person questioned asked a question of his own. Is the latest news still good? Since we have landed in France, I thought the best place to dine tonight was a French restaurant, a favorite in London, Soho. Service was entirely as usual, and Paul, the head waiter, usually very verbose, wasn't over-communicative tonight. It's good news so far, he said. Let's hope for the best. A few tablecloth strategists were seated at nearby tables, showing their girlfriends on penciled maps of France on the linen how the fighting was going or should go. At another table, a woman was heard to remark, it's a shame that they've taken the limelight from General Alexander's show in Italy. He got all that criticism about the Anzio beachhead, and now that he's doing so well, nobody will pay any attention to him. She wasn't representative, of course, but hers was one of the voices of the evening. A taxi driver, wanting to know if the late news was still good, explained, I haven't been able to get a paper yet. The radio set still isn't standard equipment in British homes. Piccadilly Circus, sometimes called the crossroads of London, was much the same as usual, except there were fewer American soldiers about and fewer American MPs. A street hawker tried to entice buyers of squeaking woolly toy dogs, but I saw no takers. In Piccadilly subway station, I was greeted by an American lieutenant wearing the wings of an aerial navigator. Noticing my war correspondent's uniform, he asked how the news was. I filled him in and expressed wonderment at the absence of the German Air Force from the beachheads. The navigator replied, I was over there yesterday. I've been over there the last week, and I didn't see many German planes either. But they've got some somewhere, and they've got some good ones too. Along the subway tracks, empty beds awaited those who had occupied them since the London Blitz. Those men, women, and children who had been bombed out so many times or had been so shaken by the Blitz that they wouldn't dare spend a night at home. At early evening, the beds were empty. As darkness neared, their occupants began arriving. In fact, they arrived earlier than usual, and one of them told me, Jerry will sure come over here tonight. He didn't. Along Tottenham Court Road, men and women were seen carrying their tin helmets. They probably feared a bombing tonight, despite the news that the Germans failed to oppose our landings from the air. At 15 minutes to 9, the lobby of the Savoy Hotel looked normal. At 10 minutes to 9, not only the lobby, but the bars and other rooms began emptying into a special lounge where BBC broadcasts may be heard. They were gathering to hear the king, and they listened reverently. At the end, men and women rose sharply to stand while God Save the King was played. Since the King had exhorted his people to pray, I went to St. Paul's Cathedral to see whether any worshippers were gathered there. St. Paul's was closed. A sign proclaimed that Invasion Day prayers for victory had been scheduled for 1 p.m. and 5 p.m. today. Earlier in the day, the chief attraction was the House of Commons, where Mr. Churchill spoke twice. For his first speech, the only one I can talk about, the house was crowded, and there was some semblance of excitement. Although, as one reporter noted, it's often crowded and often excited for quite trivial occasions. The audience awaited Mr. Churchill. 
but the House of Commons ritual had to be obeyed. Questions that had been put down when invasion was still something to be guessed at came up for reply. Questions about laundries and about button polishing in Burma. Communist member Gallagher again demanded the abolition of banks. In all, 73 questions were asked, although at breakneck speed. Mr. Churchill didn't expect the questions to be answered so quickly. So there was a few minutes interval between the end of question time and the Prime Minister's arrival in the House. And not far away from the Prime Minister sat a man who occupied Mr. Churchill's present position 26 years ago. It was the venerable David Lloyd George, Britain's leader in World War I. He fixed Mr. Churchill with his eyes during the Prime Minister's entire speech, never glancing away until the statement had been finished. One effect of the invasion in London was to promote a sharp rise in the price of French railway bonds. These bonds are guaranteed by the French government. And so London spent D-Day, calmly and soberly in most part. It's true that there were long lines of would-be buyers for the afternoon papers when they appeared at the normal time this afternoon. No extras. It's true the landings in France were the main conversation piece. But one of London's evening newspapers says, Londoners can never again deny their phlegmatic calm. The biggest news of this or any other war saw them plodding steadily about their business. Another taxi driver mentioned one sign of enthusiasm. He said, my tips were bigger today. They usually are when people feel butt. No search for London attitude would be complete without a visit to a pub. Tonight, the pubs had the usual crowd of people drinking their mild and bitter or a drop of gin, if there was any. At the exit of one pub, I noticed a yellowed sign, a remnant of 1940, when the shoe was on the other foot. It was Queen Victoria's famous remark. There is no depression in this house, and we are not interested in possibilities of defeat. They do not exist. This is Charles Shaw in London. I return you now to CBS in New York. Next, Washington's latest news on the invasion. We take you now to Washington, Don Pryor reporting. It wasn't a Washington show today at all, and the high command here has leaned over backwards to avoid any appearance of trying to take the headlines from General Eisenhower and his men. Actually, there was no more excitement in Washington today than there must have been in Keokuk just the remote, objective, and rather helpless excitement of men and women whose boys are over there with the chips down at last and the great adventure underway. And the temper of their feeling can be measured as accurately by the president's own personal reaction as in any other way. For several days off and on before this event, Mr. Roosevelt had been working on the wording of a D-Day prayer of liberation. Last night, he sat up very late giving the last fine touches while messages came pouring into the White House from General Eisenhower's headquarters. Mr. Roosevelt finished his prayer in the early morning, and when it became evident that the first stage of the invasion had come off well, he went to bed and slept a little while. At 10 o'clock tonight, Eastern wartime, the president will read his prayer to the nation in a broadcast over this network, and he has asked that all Americans join with him in that devotion. This afternoon at his regular news conference, Mr. Roosevelt seemed very well pleased with the reports from France but he added a sober warning that there's a long road yet ahead and a great deal of hardship and suffering. The same reaction was evident on Capitol Hill, where both the Senate and House opened their sessions today with a moment of silent prayer. 
But when it came to real news, Washington took a back seat. This is the world headquarters for the United Nations war. But now that this biggest of all operations is underway, all the top commanders prefer to leave the glory, the credit, and the power to the men who are shooting the guns. Like all the rest of us, these men of the high command feel that they must only wait now for the outcome and for General Eisenhower's report. But they still have plenty to do. For to them, the invasion of Europe is only one phase of a war that covers the world. They must still plan, train men, and mass supplies for every theater. At noon today, Generals Marshall and Arnold and Admiral King called on the president and stayed with him in conference for an hour and a half. They seemed to be in high spirits, but they refused to talk, except for a very brief comment by Admiral King on behalf of the whole group. The invasion, he said, is going all right so far. The most popular subjects for discussion and speculation here today have been the Russians and the Japanese, except for the direct news from France, of course. Beyond this current battle, there are two uppermost questions in the minds of serious military men. When are the Russians going to open their final big drive from the east, and when will the next big news come from the Pacific? The speculation on those subjects would fill a good-sized volume, but so far it is only conjecture. There's full confidence here, however, that the Red Army will, will fulfill its promises in full measure. The only question now is when the blow will strike. As for the Pacific, there may be some interest in a story that was put out by British sources this afternoon. They said they had information that for every American ship in the Allied invasion in France, there were three British ships. That may be some uh, pointed reminder that our vast naval force in the Pacific is still at top strength, unaffected by the attack in Europe, and ready for still greater blows against the Japanese. I return you now to New York. The Judy Canova program, usually presented at this time over most of these stations by the Colgate Palmolive Peat Company, was canceled tonight that we might present the special broadcast just concluded. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Here's five minutes of the latest news brought to you by Johns Manville. Tonight, because of the invasion, our entire time will be devoted to the news. Your reporter, Bill Henry. General Eisenhower tonight issued a blunt communique which says that Allied forces have succeeded in their initial landings in France. Fighting continues. Losses have been less than expected. We are warned that the first enemy counterattacks may be expected within 48 hours. Behind those blunt words lies the story of the greatest trifibious attack of all time, a stupendous land, sea, and sky invasion so spectacular and dramatic that it has all but blotted out all other war news. The Allied forces in Italy, whose capture of Rome surely deserves to be remembered more than 24 hours, have now driven nearly 10 miles north of the Italian capital. American bombers from Italy, which landed in Russia the other day, made a tremendous attack on an airfield at Galatz in Romania today and returned to the Russian bases. Air activity continues in the Pacific. MacArthur's troops have resumed their advance on Biak Island, northwest of New Guinea. Bangkok has been heavily bombed, and we're still making slow progress in Burma. That's a quick roundup of the other war news. In Europe, the invasion effort commenced at midnight last night under forbidding skies. Bad weather, it is now known, had forced a 24-hour postponement of the invasion. The great black bombers of the RAF drew the honor of pulling out all the stops as the invasion organ roared to a mighty crescendo. In the first eight hours of the day, the RAF, followed by our heavy bombers, 
poured the almost unbelievable total of 11,000 tons on the French coast. While the last bombs were still falling, the eye was further blackened by swarms of troop-carrying planes from which grim shootists leaped at a given moment to seize vital areas such as bridges, road junctions, and open areas in which by nightfall a thousand troop-carrying planes and gliders had put a huge force estimated at 20,000 airborne troops on French soil. Hundreds of tiny fighter craft, their wings and bellies striped black and white for identification purposes, swarmed like angry bees above and around the carriers. Meanwhile, offshore, a motley procession of shipping, thousands of them of all shapes and sizes, ranging from buzzing PT boats and grimy minesweepers to majestic battleships, ranged across the channel and formed offshore. The battle wagons adding to the mad din with their 16-inch shells while smaller craft spun smoke screens to protect the invading American, British, and Canadian infantrymen. The American naval commander was Rear Admiral Alan Kirk, veteran of North African and Sicilian landing operations. In the battle line were the USS Nevada, survivor of Pearl Harbor, and HMS Warspite, scarred veteran of British naval triumphs from Narvik in Norway to the awful slaughter of Mussolini's sailors at Matapan in the Mediterranean. Forming up like flower girls and bridesmaids at a wedding, the landing craft made their way ashore and began the dual task of overcoming the German defenses while the men fought their way inland to a junction with the paratroopers and airborne forces. That, in brief, is the picture of D-Day across the channel. As the situation stands tonight, we must rely on fragmentary items of information. It is now clear that the major effort of the first day entailed landing around the edges and inland at the base of the Normandy Peninsula, which has Cherbourg, the most important port in northern France, at its peak. All the way from Le Havre at the mouth of the Seine to Barfleur, very close to Cherbourg, we have made landings. To the west of the peninsula, we appear to have made landings on the beautiful Channel Islands of Jersey and Guernsey. Inland at the base of the peninsula, our airborne troops have landed at several places, and the focal point of fighting seems to be the ancient city of Caen, spelled C-A-E-N. It's about 10 miles from the Norman coast, and we have the word of Winston Churchill that our men were fighting inside the city late this afternoon. That completes the encirclement of the peninsula. D-Day has come and gone. We've had good initial success. The fate of the invasion still hangs in the balance. We can feel confident that our men are thoroughly trained, expertly led, and they have equipment second to none. Today, King George of England called for a nationwide vigil of prayer for the success of our arms. In this country, over this, this network, an hour from now, President Roosevelt will lead this nation in a, in a prayer, the text of which has been published and in which he asks all of us to join. And now, here is Tony Marvin. Bill Henry and the News was brought to you by Johns Manville. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. <laughs>